Hey, old brothers, this is Didact, finally back with another podcast in the Didactic Mind series. This is Didactic Mind, episode 114, and forgive us our debts. A very warm welcome to my long-suffering, loyal uh, Podbean subscribers. A very warm welcome to my uh, loyal subscribers from the site as well. And of course, if you have not subscribed, please make sure you hit that subscribe button either on the Podbean link or on the website itself so you never miss another post from the site. Uh, Be sure to check out my Telegram channel as well because that's where you get to see up-to-the-minute sort of news and information from the various Telegram feeds that I follow. And you'll also be able to interact with me directly via text. And uh, it's a really good community. We've got, uh, at the moment, I mean, it, it fluctuates between about 125 to 140 members. Uh, it used to be as high as, I think, 138 at one point, thereabouts. So just shy of 140. Now it's at 125. Um, it's a private channel, so you have to actually click on a link to get there. Uh, but I think it's well worth it. We've got a great community of really cool guys uh, and one or two girls, although they are pretty much silent. They don't comment um, at all, <laughs> which I, I is entirely understandable because it is very much a, a boy's own sort of channel. And no, you know, no, no spicy stuff in there. It's just, it's guys talking about guy stuff, you know, guns, planes, war, um, you know, swapping uh, ribald jokes a few times, but it's all good. It's all in good fun and uh, very much worth the uh, the effort because uh, the community is what makes it special. And that Telegram community is made up of people who read the website, people who listen to the podcast, people who are just there for the lulls, as it were, on the Telegram site for the memes, and people who are just more interested in a more live, up-to-date sort of uh, approach to uh, news and views. And I think Telegram is, is absolutely perfect for that. It, it is a far better platform for messaging and other things than WhatsApp. It is far better than uh, YouTube in many aspects, far better than Twitter, in my view. So there's a lot going for Telegram. I'm a big, big fan of the, uh, the, the Messenger app. I think it's very, very useful. And I think everybody should be using Telegram, at least to some extent. Uh, I will say in terms of security, well, in all honesty, all of the big platforms have probably been co-opted at some point by Western intelligence. WhatsApp has been compromised for years. I mean, anything you post on a WhatsApp group, you know, if it's even vaguely political, the United States, the the FIBIs and the CIA will be able to read it. The NSA can read it Uh, because the Israeli group uh, Pegasus infiltrated it a long time ago. Telegram, I don't know. I suspect that's you know, it's probably the same deal. Uh, Threema is one created by the Swiss security services. I, I mean, again, the Swiss have infiltrated it, supposedly because it's Swiss, nobody else can read it, but come on, uh, we know the Swiss aren't neutral. Telegram's an interesting case because the Russians have been trying for years to ban Telegram domestically, but they've never gotten around to it. Why is that? Because actually it turns out Telegram is very good for local conversations and contacts. And uh, the Telegram organization, founded by a Russian, by the way, Pavel Durov. Uh, Pavel lives in Dubai right now. He's in the UAE. And the Russian government has repeatedly tried to shut it down. But 
particularly after the 2022 invasion of Ukraine, they've just never gotten around to it because they recognize the value of Telegram as a platform. So, you know, if you're posting on there, particularly in Russian, you're probably going to be picked up by the Russian FSB. But let's face facts, the Russians are more committed to free speech and freedom of expression by far than any Western government is by this point. So let's be honest about that. Uh, there's, there's simply no equivalent to Western censorship anywhere. Even the Chinese aren't this bad at this point. Uh, they're pretty bad about a lot of things, but they're not as bad as the West about pretending to be all about free speech and then actually cracking down on it every opportunity they get. But of course, as anybody who's been paying attention knows, free speech is an inversion of the anti-blasphemy laws we've always had on the books. But be that as it may, that is somewhat beside the point that I want to discuss today. Today, I want to talk on the subject of debt forgiveness. And I want to talk about it from the perspective of economics, but also from scripture. Now, people who take their faith seriously, take the Christian faith seriously, know full well the, the words of the Lord's Prayer, of course. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I modify the word slightly. And permit us not to be led into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we all know those words. Uh, Again, I modify those words slightly just because, you know, I, I, can't, I can't perceive, I can't conceive of a, a loving and just creator God who would willingly lead people into temptation. It doesn't make sense. But the important thing to understand is the wording of the Lord's Prayer uh, is a little different from what many of us originally had in mind. If you go to Matthew chapter 6, you will see the Lord's Prayer in any Bible you choose to to look at. I like the English Standard Version because it's, in my opinion, the best. But what they teach you in, let's say, the Catholic Church or many of the Anglican churches or many of the Protestant denominations or whatever, is not quite the Lord's Prayer as it's written in the Bible. The lines about lead us, uh, forgive us our trespasses actually originally says in the ESV, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And uh, if you look at the manuscript note for that last word, uh, deliver us from the evil one is in some manuscripts. And of course, then other manuscripts also add, for yours is the kingdom, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, it's a beautiful prayer, but I want to focus very specifically on Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Why is this important? Because this is a direct connection to the Jubilee year. And if you go look up that in your Bibles, you'll find this in Leviticus. For example, Leviticus 25, 
And if you read the full chapter of, or you, you read that, that verse in context, here's what it says. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8 onwards to verse, uh, I won't, I'm not sure I'll, I'll read all the way to verse 22, but we'll see. Leviticus chapter 25, starting at verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely." The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we not, may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. And... You shall also, you know, if you, if you keep going and, and reading into uh, the rest of that chapter, what you're going to find is essentially debt forgiveness. Now, why is this important? The reason why God put this in the chapter or in Leviticus, and let me be very, very clear about this. I am not a biblical scholar. I don't pretend to be. But it's very plainly obvious to me what is going on here, why this Jubilee year is in the Bible, why uh, it is so important within the, the law of God. Why is this? For the simple reason that within Leviticus chapter 25, you will find repeatedly lots of stuff about redemption of property, uh, forgiveness of debt, and if you go uh, down to sort of, well, where is it, uh, basically verses 39 onwards, I mean, you, you just read through the whole of the, the, the chapter, uh, Leviticus chapter 25, you'll find it talking about the need for jubilee, the need for uh, sort of a, a refreshment of the land, of forgiveness of debt, of redeeming a poor man, it literally says that in the English Standard Version, of loosening the bonds of slavery, of chattel, of giving men a chance to start over every 50 years. Why? Why is it that every two and a half generations, God basically says to the Israelites, 
you will forgive debt. And why is it that 1,400 years later, Jesus comes down, God himself comes down and says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors, i.e., you know, why is it that uh, Jesus talks constantly in the New Testament about uh, the the you know the the parable the the parable of the the uh, the wicked servant, the one who the, the dishonest manager, the one who you know the the servant who goes out like he his master comes and uh, his servant owes him lots of money and the master grabs him and says you will pay me all of your debts or I'll throw you in prison and the servant says no I'm sorry let me go I'll find the money for you and. He, uh, you know, and the, the master forgives him, and the servant goes away and grabs one of his servants and shakes him and says, "You will pay me your debts." And the servant, the, the junior servant, says, I, "I don't have the money." And that wicked servant throws the lesser servant into prison. And why is it that Jesus keeps talking about the need for debt forgiveness? Well, I put it to you. That if we look at our economy today in the Western world, and indeed in much of the world right now, not just in the West, we are operating in exactly the world that God predicted we would if we did not forgive debt. Now, why is debt forgiveness so important? Because it gives people a chance to restart, to reset, to rebuild, and to be productive. A world without debt forgiveness is a world in which Essentially, you have people becoming landlords or rentiers at all times. There is a very strong incentive to simply earn interest on debt without making productive investments in anything, which means you have a debt-driven rentier economy. Why is this bad? Because it means the productive resources of an economy gets stripped out, gutted, exported away, financialized. And that is exactly the world we live in today. If you follow the logic, it's very simple. Why would you invest in building a plant or a factory when all you need to do really is in the hopes of renting out a house or an asset, you buy that asset and then you you know, you incur a debt for it, of course, uh, but you then rent it to someone else. You charge them a higher rent than you are actually paying in your monthly mortgage payments. And the cash flow is what your income then becomes. Why is this a problem? Because it means you have an incentive to go out and buy uh cash flow generating assets that are not themselves actually producing anything. Whereas if you had to invest that money in building a factory, that factory or that farm or that business would then generate future cash flows and future jobs and future opportunities that generate tangible returns, tangible goods and services that deliver real value for people in a real economy. Okay. This is the fundamental paradox of what you might call neoliberal capitalism or the neoclassical synthesis. 
Ultimately, the neoclassical synthesis drives you, if you understand you know, the economics, without going to the details of the mathematics, which I assure you I can, but they're quite obtuse and um, quite detailed, uh, the mathematics will inevitably drive you towards the conclusion that you want low interest rates and you want lots of borrowing and you want lots of money printing and money creation for the sole purpose of letting people buy up stuff and then rent it out. And this creates an economy of uh, what is called in the literature bricolage. It's a French word, you can go look it up. But the field of bricolage research is fairly new from what I've seen. I happen to know one of the professors uh, who gets involved in it. He's, arrogant ass, but he's very brilliant. Uh, he's a very, very smart guy, but he's an arrogant ass. Um, yeah, look who's talking, right? So uh, all I can say is, if you look at the, the work that he's done on the subject, and it's not just him, but there's, I mean, I'm not going to name him, but there's, there's a bunch of stuff around this concept of bricolage, which talks about, in a non-mathematical way, how the rentier economy has come to be. And again, not just him, there's also Dr. Michael Hudson and Dr. Uh, Fadi Lama. Uh, Fadi Lama came up with a great book recently called Why the West Cannot Win. And Dr. Fadi Lama is not actually by trade an economist. He didn't start out studying economics. Like a lot of people who have become economic uh, heretics, if you will, my understanding is he started out in like an engineering type field. In fact, let me go look him up right now, Dr. Fadi Lama. Uh, this guy, uh, he was, he is an inter, eh, come on. He is an international advisor for the, wow, his hair looks ridiculous. Uh, that's an old picture. Uh, he is an international advisor for the European Bank of Reconstruction Development and a partner with DNL Strategic Consulting, uh, offering consulting services, blah, blah, blah. Received his PhD in Mechanical Engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology, his MSc in Manufacturing Technology from the City University of London, and his BE in Mechanical Engineering from the American University of Beirut. I.e., he's an engineer. He's not an economist. He wasn't brainwashed into the neoclassical synthesis from an early age. If you go look at Dr. Michael Hudson, look up his background. What did he do? If you look up uh, his educational background, he's, he's bloody brilliant, um, but he didn't start out in economics. Uh, he, so he says he attended the, if you go look up his Wikipedia link, uh, let's see, he is, uh, let's see, well, interesting. He's a fifth generation American as on his maternal line, he has Ojibwe blood, whatever that means. Um, he, D Dr. Hudson himself received, uh, actually was educated at, Unifor at, a, at the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools. He entered the University of Chicago with two majors, Germanic Philology and History. And then he graduated with a bachelor's degree and translated a bunch of works. And then uh, what else did he do? Uh, he got his PhD from the uh, university from New York University and what else yeah um, yeah he's he's done uh, you know he's 
he's basically a very heterodox thinker in, in any way that uh, actually matters. So uh, he studied the, yeah, he enrolled in the economics department of New York University in 1961. He has also, uh, he's actually studied communist or Marxist economics and studied the theories of surplus value. Uh, and he's, he, his, his master's thesis was devoted to the development philosophy of the World Bank and paid special attention to credit policy in the agricultural sector. And then he talked, he says his, his initial interests were all about the dynamics of debt and how the pattern of bank lending inflates land prices or national income accounting and the rising share absorbed by rent extraction in the finance, insurance and real estate, i.e. fire sector. Uh, this, there was only one way to learn how to analyze these topics to work for banks. So he got his master's degree in economics, then joined Chase Manhattan Bank's economics research department and, you know, did quite a bit of work in banking, uh, completed his doctoral dissertation, and he did his PhD in economic history, actually. But then he also joined the accounting firm Arthur Anderson, and he was looking at the U.S. deficit in considerable detail. And this is where it gets really interesting because you see this sort of heterodox thinking throughout a lot of these people's mental faculties. In my case, um, my background is in mathematics. So it's not pure economics. I studied economics throughout much of my adult life. Um, oh, early adult life, I should say. And I mean, I literally read, I literally read through uh, Paul Samuelson's book on economics, his textbook. Uh, I think it was the 13th, was it the 13th or 15th edition? I forget. This is, you know, this was 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. Uh, that's how old I am. Uh, but I, I remember reading through that textbook and going through it in just like devouring it in detail. I mean, I was reading that textbook at the time that other people were going out for parties and hooking up with girls. So, you know, how sad was my life back then? But for me, at least, it was really interesting. So I absorbed all of this neoclassical economic synthesis, all of this sort of very mathematical approach to doing things. But I actually ended up studying mathematics um, as my primary focus and mathematical finance, ultimately. And it was during my time in the US that I started coming across Austrian economics and basically became a heretic, a heterodox thinker that rejected the original um, neoclassical approach to economics and said, this doesn't make sense anymore. And the more I looked at the Austrian business cycle theory, the ABCT, the more I understood that neoclassical economics did not have the answers. It, it doesn't, it still doesn't, because neoclassical economics completely ignores the role of debt and the role of money creation in creating economic crises. It says every economic crisis, like in, in Keynesian terms, every economic crisis is the product of animal spirits. And you always want to keep a low rate of interest because that will spur investment and creation in the economy. And Keynes, who was a brilliant economist, uh, if you look at his work on uh, the economic consequences of the peace, you realize very quickly what a brilliant guy he really was because he predicted with almost perfect clarity the economic realities that would drive the return of Europe-wide warfare 20 years later, a generation afterwards. 
after 1919. And he was almost exactly spot on with everything he said. But then his 1936 book, The General Theory of Wages, Employment, and Interest, uh, I think I've got that right, um, was just a, it was a muddled, turgid, illogical, mathematically obtuse mess. I don't know what happened, but he, he just, he completely butchered the science or the, 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 the field of economics. And the result that we have today is a field of human, of study of human behavior that completely, is almost completely divorced from the human being and doesn't take into account human behavior. Behavioral economics is pushing the field back towards that, which is good. It's a good thing. It gets rid of this ridiculous homo economicus construct, this paradigm, which is completely fake. And it looks instead at the way humans actually behave. And it tries to model that behavior in ways that are rational and predictable and mathematically sound, but it doesn't make this presupposition that humans behave rationally all the time. That's a good thing. But ultimately, what most mainstream economists keep missing is the fundamental role of debt. Why is this important? Because the standard approach to calculating national income or national output is, of course, GDP. Now, if anytime somebody says GDP, just as Dr. Hudson, as Dr. Fadi Lama, as Dr. You know, as as any number of Austrian uh, economists, Austrian type economists will tell you, whenever you hear GDP, just assume bullshit statistic, right? It's the same as the late Charlie Munger used to say, uh, God rest his soul. I mean, he was a great investor. He just died a few days ago. Uh, he was Warren Buffett's uh, investing partner at Berkshire Hathaway. He's the guy who convinced Warren Buffett to stop investing in what the, the, the value investing community knows of as cigar butt companies, you know, companies that are just on the cusp of bankruptcy, but they still have a good business model. They, you know, you look at them and they're, they're mismanaged, they've got problems, they've got issues, but the, the fundamentals of the business are really, really good. They've got like a good balance sheet, they've got good assets, there's something about that business that's worth investing in. And you can get a little bit of a spurt out of the stock price just before it dies, right? That's a cigar butt company. One last puff before it dies out. And Charlie Munger was the one who told Warren Buffett to stop investing at wonderful companies uh, or, uh, what, what did he say? Uh, fair companies at wonderful prices and start investing in wonderful companies at fair prices. Now you understand how that switches the dynamic around. Well, Charlie Munger was also the one who said repeatedly, every time you hear the word EBITDA, just assume bullshit earnings. It's the same with GDP. The moment you hear somebody talking about how great GDP is, just assume he's talking bullshit economic statistics because that's what it is. I'll give you a very simple example. And again, this is not my formulation. I don't pretend to be an original thinker of any kind. Let's be very clear about that. The way you can boost GDP artificially, one of several ways actually, is by issuing a bunch of debt. How does that increase GDP now? It's very simple. You've essentially... Uh, just increase the money supply in the economy. You've like boosted the money supply. It's multiplied out many times over. It's gone into investments, supposedly, which will generate money, supposedly, which will generate jobs, supposedly, which will generate income. Uh, but has it really done that? 
has it really boosted employment? No, not really. It's just money creating money off of money. I mean, that's how Wall Street works. It's literally money from money. I can assure you that's the truth. I've, I've worked on Wall Street. I'm literally on Wall Street. I was there on Wall Street uh, at, on the actual physical street for years. I know how that place operates. It simply operates by taking a book of derivatives that are priced at X. The market moves by, let's say, 10 basis points. You revalue your book to X plus something. And that X plus something, that plus something is your gain for the day. Have you produced any new jobs? No. Have you produced more widgets? No. Has Spacely Sprockets created a new factory in your hometown? No. Nothing has changed in the underlying economy except that something in the market has moved and you've made money off of that. This is how that business works, okay? Another way you can manipulate GDP is just by looking at the formulation. C plus I plus X plus C plus I plus G plus X minus M or, or um, NI, net imports, however you want to formulate it. C plus I plus G, right? Consumption plus investment plus government spending plus net imports or net exports. Now, the reason why I call GDP bullshit statistics is because of a very simple logical truth. Every economic actor that produces also consumes. And every economic actor that consumes also produces. If you are not consuming, you are not producing. If you are trying to produce something without having raw materials or inputs to produce it, what the hell are you producing? You can't produce anything. If you are trying to consume something without also producing something of value that someone else is going to pay you money for, how the hell are you going to finance your consumption? You can't do it. So this artificial distinction of demand versus supply is exactly that, artificial. It doesn't make sense. This is the great failure point of Keynesian economics. But when you look at, again, those components, C plus I plus G, you look at the G component, that's government spending. How can you boost uh, the economy? How can you boost GDP without actually hiring anything or, or changing anything? You can do it by importing a million new people into your country, illegal aliens. Just bring them in and pay them each $1,000 or you know, local currency equivalent. If you do that, you've boosted your GDP by a, uh, a billion dollars. One million immigrants times a thousand dollars each, a billion dollars. You've boosted your economy. But have you actually produced anything of value? No. How are you financing that GDP increase? By issuing debt. And what is the net result of that on the economy? It's actually deleterious to the economy. It's harmful to the economy. Because you now have a million people in the country who are not legal. They are able to undercut the locals in terms of wages and uh, jobs. They are much cheaper to hire. They don't share your values. They don't share your history. They are not of your ethnos, as it were. They are not of your country. So they are a foreign parasitic body or a foreign parasitic organism attached to the body politic and you're financing them, all in the name of increasing GDP. Now do you understand why GDP is a bullshit statistic? So the way you boost GDP artificially in this way 
simply creates false economic prosperity. What are the consequences of that through debt creation? Well, you can look at the situation today of the average millennial or the average Gen Z type. And if you look at the picture in the United States or in the United Kingdom or much of the Western world, it's an utter disaster. Let me run you through a few statistics, okay? If you look at the percentage of uh, older Gen Zers and younger millennials living at home with their parents in the United States in 2022 by gender, this is from Statista 2023, and the data is uh, the data they get are from well, various places, but this is a publicly available statistic. The proportion for men of older Gen Zers, meaning 18 to 24, living at home. 56%, 55.8% of older Gen Zers live at home with their parents. For women, it's 53.6%. Among younger millennials aged 25 to 34, the proportions are much lower, but they're still substantial. 17.8% for men aged 25 to 34, and 11.6% for women aged 25 to 34. That's in the United States. If you look at the level of U.S. consumer debt by uh, sort of broken down by sort of uh, component, it went from a total of about nine trillion dollars in 2005 to 18 years later, so about a generation later, to 17.3 trillion, almost double in 15 years. Okay, that's total consumer debt. And by far the largest proportion of that debt is mortgage debt. But the second and third largest components are student loan debt and auto loan debt. Credit card debt is actually fourth in line. And sort of fifth and sixth, you've got um, other and then home, equ well, sort of home equity line of credit, uh, HELOCs or you know, reverse mortgages and uh, other debt of whatever kind, you know, short-term loans, uh, payday loans, uh, scams of various kinds, that sort of thing. If you look at the average amount of student loan debt per capita, there's a USA Today, uh, US News article actually, which goes into this, and I'm not sure about some of the figures because they are somewhat contradictory, but you're talking about, um, sorry, not student loan debt, uh, yeah, if you look at student loan debt, this is a Forbes article, the credit card debt I'll get to next. If you look at total student loan debt, it's close to, uh, it is, where is it, where is it? It is $1.75 trillion in total. And it looks like the average student loan debt is somewhere around, well, it's actually a little hard to find in this uh, thing, but it is somewhere around $34,000, 35000 Dollars in the United States. Uh, there's a there's a contradiction in this um, in this article. It says twenty eight thousand nine hundred fifty dollars owed per borrower on average, and then farther down in the same article, it's like thirty four thousand dollars, something like that. Uh, once you get past the the states, it says it says somewhere it says federal student loans make up the vast majority of American education debt. About 92% of all outstanding student loans is federal debt. The federal student loan portfolio currently stands totals more than 1.6 trillion 
owed by about 43 million borrowers, okay? So that, I mean, we're talking just a colossal mountain of debt. Uh, and we're talking about, uh, where is it? Uh, I mean, we're talking about, uh, in terms of age distribution, just a, uh, a really genuinely horrifying uh, picture. Because if you look at the distribution in that same article, you'll see that the majority of the debt owed is between those aged 35 to 49, and it's sitting on $622 billion of student loan debt, spread out across 14.4 million people. Uh, Age 25 to 34 is not far behind. $500 billion spread out across 14.9 million people. So about roughly equal uh, numbers in the denominator, but substantially larger numbers in the numerator. And if you look at that, if you look at those two numbers and you go back to what I just said about the proportion of older Gen Zers and younger millennials living at home, this is not coincidental. This is not surprising because the people who are paying off the student loan debt are the very people who can't afford to start their own families and start their own businesses and start their own uh, kind of lives and build toward a uh, a an actual you know useful um, life path, and if you look at the total fertility rate tracked through time, this is not surprising. If you actually look at what's happening, you will see that the total fertility rate in the United States has been trending downwards for years, and if we look more closely since, let's say, about the year 2000. And we track up to today, pretty much, you know, uh, about the year 2020 or so, um, 2023. What we're seeing is from the year 2000, the total fertility rate in the United States was about 2, 2.014. And it's dropped now to about 1.784, according to macro trends. And that number does not actually tell the full story, because if you go by a demographic cohort, the fertility rates are catastrophic. They are dropping far below replacement levels for millennials and well below replacement levels for Gen Z. Why is this happening? It's happening because of the debt. It's happening because... People are too indebted to start up families, to start up their own lives, to start up their own businesses. This is exactly the same trend we're seeing repeated across the world. Uh, If you go back to, uh, and this is not new, I mean, if you go back to last Monday's great Monday Dact browser smasher, uh, I think it was in there someplace. It was in the linkage section, and I talked about, uh, I, I went and found an article about it. Uh, from somewhere, some something. Uh, where was it? Um, where is it? Uh, no, not there. It's, yeah, here we go. It's basically, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, basically the fact that Gen Z, and this was, uh, you know, Gen Z being the most lonely generation, the one that has the most difficult time adapting to the realities of the nine to five lifestyle. Uh, This is, it's a very serious set of problems that they're facing. And it's happening because 
they're basically unable to start living their lives. They're unable to formulate an actual life for themselves because they're too far in debt. And it just gets worse if you look at the national level. What's going on at the, the, the national level is just horrifying. The national debt per capita in the United States is now sitting at $92,500. And it's going to go well past hundred grand uh, in just a few years because the interest payments on U.S. national debt are exploding. It's very easy to, to, to pile debt on top of debt when interest rates are low. But if you're, you know, you're dealing with interest rates at five plus percent, or four plus percent, five plus percent uh, at the long end of the curve, well, it's not going to work. It's not, a, it's, it's not a good thing at all. So what we're looking at right now is a very serious collapse in Western, particularly white, family formation and childbirth. And the data bears this out. It's, it's very clear what's going on. What we're seeing is essentially a world in which you're creating a bunch of debt slaves who only exist to perpetuate a system that makes money out of money. It's a rentier economy. This is why you've got Goldman Sachs and BlackRock buying up rental properties across the United States, across the Western world, and then turning around and charging young people rent making it impossible for them to actually finance their own homes. Now, what is the best predictor of a large family? Because it's very obvious, if you look at birth rates throughout the Western world, they're all collapsing. In many cases, they're severely underwater. The demographic black uh, event horizon, the demographic black hole has an event horizon of about 1.8 births per woman, children per woman. Uh, live, you know, healthy, surviving births per woman. That is below replacement level. Uh, the replacement level is about 2.1. If you look at a population pyramid, just a, if you look at a healthy population, it's got a pyramid-shaped structure where there are lots and lots of young people supporting a very small number of old people, relatively speaking. And if you look at the largest uh, country in the world by population, India, that's exactly what you see. You see a massive young population with not too many old people. Now, in the next 30 or 40 years, that's going to change because India has serious demographic and economic problems. It is a shithole country. It has serious problems. If you look at Japan, you're seeing kind of the inversion. It's more like a funnel shape where you've got lots of old people and a very small number of middle-aged people, relatively speaking, and not very many young people. If you look at just a stable, static society, it looks the, the population chart looks like a column where you've got roughly equal numbers of old people, middle-aged people, and young people. That is a society that is neither growing nor contracting. If you look at India, that is a society that is rapidly growing. If you look at Japan, that is a society that is contracting. What is the number one predictor of large families, of uh, the ability to have a sustainable middle-class lifestyle? Think about it for a minute. The answer may surprise you. It's the ability to afford your own house. Why is this the case? If you think about it, and you, you, you abandon all the economic garbage that comes along with it, you know, all the neoclassical 
guff and nonsense that comes along with uh, with all this with all this stuff, you're going to realize very quickly why that makes sense. It makes sense because you have the security and the stability that comes from knowing this is your place, this is your home. There is a reason why in many cultures a man is not considered worthy of marriage until he has his own property. There's a reason why in Russia, the expectation is the man will have his own apartment or his own house of some kind. Even if he's paying a mortgage on it, that's fine. But he will have a house, a home of some kind for his wife to run. Now, there's a very interesting experiment done some years ago in Russia, uh, while we're on the subject of Russia. Because Russia has, as it happens, a shrinking population, or it did until fairly recently. Uh, the birth rate plummeted during the post-Soviet years. For that, that lost decade, it was a disaster, a demographic catastrophe for Russia. And it's only recently begun picking up. Now, the Russian government has thrown vast amounts of money, by their standards, at the problem of declining birth rates. They have repeatedly tried to make it clear the national priority must be big families. They are they're giving all sorts of incentives. They're, they're giving women who have uh, four or more children, for example, like uh, forgiveness of income taxes and major child-rearing subsidies and free housing and free this and free that, free education, free healthcare. I mean, healthcare in Russia is already free. It's government. It's paid for by the government. Uh, at least at the state level. You can also get private insurance, but etc. Um, they're also making sub substantial provisions in the 2023 to 24 budget and 24 to 25 budget for uh, children of veterans of the special military operation and of military servicemen, not even just people who fight in the SMO, but people who sign up as contract soldiers. So they're, they're, they're also making all of these provisions in the tax code to give money back to women who put childbirth first. There are proposals in the state Duma uh, saying that any, any woman who has a child below, before the age of 25 uh, should get a certain you know, amount of money from the government. She should get certain special privileges, special rights. Uh, I think it's actually more than one child before the age of 25. So they're doing everything they can to encourage uh, young motherhood, and that's a good thing. But here's the interesting part. About 80% of Russia's population lives west of the Ural Mountains, okay? Uh, west of places like Chelyabinsk and Omsk and these big, huge manufacturing, Soviet-era manufacturing towns. 16 million people live in Moscow, the, like the greater Moscow area. 8 million people live in the greater St. Petersburg metro area. That's 24 million people out of a population of about 150-odd million, okay? Most of Russia's population lives in the western part, the western sort of one-third of Russia. If you look at the Far East, there are very, very few people out there. It's, I think, 15, 20 million total in a, just a, a colossal area of the country. You could drop the entire United States into the Far East of Russia, and pretty much nobody would notice, really. I mean, there's so much room out there, it's like, it's ridiculous. Uh, you, you basically run into bears and eagles out there. Um, it, it, it's, it's that empty. But that is also the least developed part of Russia. 
and it's the one that has the greatest trouble with declining birth rates and declining populations. How do the Russians deal with it? They tried a number of different things, but the most successful experiment they ran was the one in which they basically gave people their own homes. Think about that for a minute. Why would that work where financial incentives failed? Because the single biggest asset you're ever going to pay for in your life is your home. It's your single most valuable investment. When you get that pretty much for free, no matter how humble it is, and I've been to a few Russian homes, they can be pretty humble. But no matter how humble that government apartment is, it's a basis upon which to build your life. You have a home. You have all of a sudden all of this capital that you can deploy to other things and you can afford to have a big family. You can afford to have multiple children because you don't have to worry about how you're going to feed them. The money that you were going to put aside for your mortgage payment is now going toward feeding your family. And that is the critical differentiating factor. This is why debt forgiveness has to be high on the agenda for any country that wants to preserve its ethnos. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not turning communist. I am very much of the view that communists should be shot on sight as a form of preemptive national defense. That has never changed. I am not arguing for a communist policy. I am saying that debt forgiveness must be high on the agenda for any Western government that wants to encourage child rearing. It has to happen because if you don't do this, you're going to be left with a society dealing with a massive overhang of debt, which it can never pay off. And you're going to have a crippled culture, a crippled nation. This comes back to the concept of debt forgiveness. Why is it so important? Because God foresaw all of this in the Bible. It's written right there. God understood perfectly well that you cannot create uh, an economic system out of just rentiers. You need people who have the ability to generate productive things, to, to do things with the land, with their hands, with the product of their minds, without constantly having to fear being thrown in jail for their debts. Now, the natural boomer argument against this will be, well, you know, you're encouraging moral hazard if you allow for payment of debts. Yes, that's true. Up to a point. That's true. You are. However, this is a question, if you look at it at a, in, a, in a utilitarian way, in a, in a Benthamite sort of way, what is of the greater good? Encouraging moral hazard for taking out lots of debt where uh, people borrow inappropriately versus creating a society of ownership and of investment in productive capital. Which one is better long-term for society? Well, it's obviously the second one. And indeed, when you have people who borrow beyond their means in the hopes of avoiding a debt jubilee, you can always tell who those people are, because 50 years is a damn long time. It's two and a half generations. You can figure out pretty quickly who is going to be ramping up their borrowing beyond sustainable levels. And you don't, 
keep in mind, there is a covenant between the debtor and the debtee, if you will. Uh, it's a crappy term, but you know, the, 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 the lender, the person who lends and the person who borrows, right? The lender and the borrower, yeah, that's actually correct. The lender and the borrower have a covenant between them. Neither is being forced to take on debt or issue debt. It's just a fact. If the lender is stupid enough to lend money to somebody in the years approaching a debt jubilee that he knows the borrower can't pay back, he's a moron. If the borrower borrows money in the years leading up to a debt jubilee that he knows he can't pay back, he's a moron. So there are mechanisms by which you can insulate society from these moral hazard problems. That's not insurmountable. What is insurmountable is not having enough people left over after the jet debt jubilee, after you know, future to, to, to steward future generations. What is the point of having a debt-based, debt-driven economic system which only encourages investment in specific sectors of the economy, like you have in the United States right now, if you're not going to have a nation around in the future to guard that nation's values? What is the point? The answer is very simple. It doesn't exist. That society collapses. Another counter-argument, and this is actually, I would say, a good one, is if you look at the dirt world, particularly if you look at African countries, how much debt has the world forgiven for Africa? The answer is not a small amount. It's, it's insignificant next to the total amount of debt Africa still owes. But the fact is Western countries have forgiven African debts and loans. That's true. Russia, very recently, forgave a bunch of debts uh, to that African countries owed them, several billion dollars, which for the Russian economy is not a small number. What is going to happen to Africa? Well, nothing, because it's Africa. I mean, look, let's not be cavalier about it. This is what Africa does. Just, you know, that's what they're like. They're, they're going to borrow more. They're going to live beyond their means. They're going to use an R-selected strategy. That's who they are. That's fine. That's their problem. But if you look at Russia, again, as a, a rather interesting case, most people don't understand this. Russia, as the primary inheritor nation of the USSR, paid off the entire USSR's debts for all of the countries, including Ukraine, including Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, all the Ukstan countries, all the former uh, Soviet Union countries, Belarus, uh, Armenia, Georgia, etc., 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 paid them all off. Now, what they didn't pay off, it's very important to understand, they didn't pay off the Lend-Lease debt from uh, the 1940s because the United States has never actually called in that debt. The United States bankrupted England to pay off the Lend-Lease debt, but interestingly, it never attempted to extract the Lend-Lease debts from Russia, to my knowledge. So that's still outstanding. Uh, but all of Russia's debts, dating back to imperial times for the Russian Empire, the modern Russian government has paid off. And what has that done? It has allowed those nations, which were under that debt yoke, to energize their productive capacity and invest in themselves in a way that they couldn't do before because they were busy paying off debt. Now, many of those nations have done absolutely nothing with that inheritance. Ukraine is the, the classic example of a country 
that threw away the entire post-Soviet legacy and became a trash canistan uh, of epic proportions, which it, it's just a... It, it was... I can think of no other country in recent memory that started out with so much and threw so much of it away and became such a shithole. I, I'm sorry to say this because I like Ukrainians as a general rule. I don't trust them, but I like them. And they are just... They're good people from good stock, but unlike Russians, they're a very low-trust people. Russians are a very high-trust people. Ukrainians are not. And they threw away that legacy. And it's very, very sad. To conclude, the point of debt forgiveness is not to encourage moral hazard. It is to encourage productive investment and productive uh, endeavors. If you avoid paying off or avoid forgiving debt, what you're going to end up with is a society of rentiers, uh, a class of people who just make money from buying up assets, leveraging those assets to extract cash flows without really investing back in those assets, and making cash flow streams that really don't produce anything of value. They just extract value from others. Whereas if you encourage debt forgiveness, particularly of household debt, of mortgage debt, of credit card debt, and of especially student loan debt for useless degrees that by and large contribute nothing to society, you're going to, number one, eliminate the problem of people going for useless degrees over time. And number two, make it possible for those people to get a fresh start in life. That is exactly the spirit of the debt jubilee. And that is exactly the reason why God had us talk about forgiving our debts and as we forgive those who owe us debt. Never forget that debt is ultimately a form of slavery. If you have a debt, you are a slave until such time as you pay off that debt. Somebody owns you until that point. Once you are free of that debt, you are free. And that is the entire point of debt forgiveness. If you want a society of free people, if you want people to build their own lives, if you want a healthy ethnos, a healthy nation, you must engage in debt forgiveness. Again, not my core idea. Vox Day has been talking about this for years. And I, I'm finally coming around to the belief that he's right. And it just it, it's not because of economics. It's because of my Christian faith. The economics, actually, once you start thinking through it, support the faith. But if you start from an economic perspective, particularly from modern economics, it's going to be nonsense. You'll never arrive at that epiphany. But once you start looking at it through a Christian lens, you're going to realize in a very, very big hurry, there is a very good reason why the concept of debt forgiveness runs throughout the entire Old and New Testaments. It's there for all to see. Well, we're about at an hour, so I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, thank you again for your patience. I appreciate it very much. Uh, for those of you who have not subscribed, please remember, hit the subscribe button. Make sure you like, comment, and share. Uh, check out the affiliate links in the description box below, because if you haven't done your Christmas shopping yet, click on the Amazon links and uh, check that out. Also, make sure if you haven't done so already, get yourself a Surfshark or Atlas VPN subscription. Links in the description box. And uh, I will see you on the next one. We've got actually an Ask Didact Anything Day coming up once my voice recovers from this one. 
and that will be in probably about a week's time uh, and we'll go through some subscriber questions uh, again if you want in on that subscribe to my telegram channel there's a pinned post up top and you can uh, ask me anything in the comments uh, that's it from me strengthen on the brothers this has been didactic mind episode 114 and forgive us our debts and this is didact signing off